Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. As the hands of the clock passed midnight, the American cargo plane slipped quietly through the frigid night air, the pilot declaring feet dry as the Mediterranean seas slipped from view below him. Off the nose ahead, an orange glow marked the crew's declared destination, a thriving city almost seven million people called home. The visitor had entered Egyptian airspace in the usual way, calling air traffic control whilst inbound and informing them of its intentions to land as filed at Cairo's International Airport. But as the aircraft, a US Air Force C-5A Galaxy, began its descent towards the city, its radio calls and the attendant air traffic control responses became works of fiction. In the minutes that followed, anyone listening would have concluded that the visitor had successfully landed at Cairo. Instead, enveloped in darkness and with its external lights now off, the C-5 droned on for another hundred miles. Beneath, Gold and silver lights speckled the verdant strip of land that emerges from Cairo and tracks the Nile southward. Not long after, the Galaxy crew located the secret airbase, circled overhead, and awaited a single green flare from the control tower. The radio silent signal they were cleared to land. On the ground, a small contingent of Egyptian Air Force officers and NCOs were patiently waiting. The distinctive whine of the Galaxy's four TF-39 turbofans was all they needed to hear. The flare duly arced through the sky. The Galaxy began its approach. The C-5 was marshalled to a large maintenance hangar in a remote corner of the base. The crew raised the aircraft's nose to allow access to the cavernous cargo space, and the hangar doors in front of them opened to the shrill pitch of a klaxon. Inside, green-tinted fluorescent light illuminated a macabre scene. On a large wheeled platform with hydraulic jacks, a so-called K-loader, 
sat objects wrapped ominously in black plastic, industrial-sized body bags awaiting disposal under the cover of darkness. One of the structures stood proud, taking the shape of an aircraft tail fin, the other flat and long, amputated wings, perhaps. Around were scattered the accoutrements of Soviet fighter and fighter bombers, an orange boarding ladder, and the elongated and slightly ungainly-looking tow bar that was compatible with Russian aircraft. And nearby rested the dismembered fuselage, also tightly wrapped in black plastic, of a large fighter aircraft. Without the weight of fuel, wings and tails to compress the oleos, the hulk stood tall on landing gears that protruded from the wrap. It loomed over a small group of western-looking men who busied themselves beneath it, completing paperwork and making final inspections. These men were American too, and they greeted their fellow countrymen as they disgorged from the C-5, gave them the cargo manifest, and provided refreshments. But there was no time to waste. The aircraft and its precious cargo had to leave before dawn, and fly non-stop to an even more secret airbase in another desert, this one in the US state of Nevada. Under no circumstances could the C-5 be seen, or, were still, identified by anyone who might care to look. Stood back from the welcome party, a man dressed in a cotton khaki suit stood smiling and posed for a handful of photos next to the cargo. He had reason to be happy. It was the 21st of September, 1977, and so it was his 46th birthday. But to him, and to thousands of unknowing American fighter aircrew in the years that would follow, today was much more than that. The reason for his smile would remain secret for decades to come. Today was the day he would hand the United States Air Force its most sought-after Soviet prize, a MiG-23 flogger fighter jet. His name was Jim Fees. Sovmat Acquisition Fees was the CIA station chief in Egypt and a long-term incumbent of the CIA's clandestine service. His service to country had started in the early 1950s when, with the Korean War in full tilt and before he could complete his university education, he had been drafted into the US Army Signal Corps. As luck would have it, an agency talent scout in the Corps spotted him, and in the fullness of time he joined the cloak-and-dagger world of international espionage. There he distinguished himself as a talented operator. Having served in the Near East Division of the clandestine service, he was sent to study Arabic full-time for one year at Georgetown School of Languages and Linguistics. From there, the role in Egypt beckoned. In preparation for his departure to Cairo, Fees met with the Air Force's chiefs in late 1973. They briefed him on the Soviet material, Sovmat, they most wanted to gain access to, and top of the list was the MiG-23 fighter-bomber, NATO codename Flogger. They desperately needed the MiG-23, Fees wrote in a secret journal. It was then the first-line Soviet fighter in the Warsaw Pact. At this time, Western intelligence agencies had for years been drastically overrating the flogger. An Air Force's tactics, weapon systems, training and future design and development are all predicated on known and expected threat capabilities and in the case of the flogger, American intelligence estimates were wrong, completely wrong. The Air Force thought that the MiG-23 was comparatively slow but highly manoeuvrable and so its tactics manuals directed pilots who tangled with it to outdive it and to avoid getting into a swirling dogfight with it. Such advice was based on estimates derived from grainy photos, 
and attempts to watch vlogger operations both visually and on radar. Clearly, it was not enough. With the vacuum of knowledge apparent, Fees made a pledge. I decided I would make that my top private priority while in Cairo, as much as my primary duties allowed. And so, as a sort of hobby project to be undertaken when time allowed, the man who would go on to be labelled one of America's most talented intelligence officers started to plot and scheme. The new chief of station in Cairo was arriving in a country whose relationship with the Soviet Union had deteriorated over a number of years, and recently declassified State Department files show that America had been quick to hasten this. Egypt's president, Anwar al-Sadat, removed the Soviet military presence from his country during the summer of 1972. The reasons for this will continue to be a matter of analysis among historians, but it was ultimately to both Egypt and America's advantage, and Fees must surely have known this by the time he arrived in country. In addition, the Egyptian Air Force must have been feeling the strain of operating with a shortage of expertise and spare parts. In short, there was both the leverage and the natural opportunity to do a deal. Fees' head-on requests for a MiG were met with immediate and unequivocal rejections, but this was to be expected, and for a man of his intellect and capabilities, it did little to dampen his spirits. That's not to say that the task ahead of him was easy. Ultimately, it would take three full years to gain the prize, and Fees got there through a layered program of relationship building and exercises intended to gain trust. The relationships he fostered went all the way to the top, and then Vice President Mubarak was the most important. It was he who, at Fee's urging, eventually convinced Al-Sadat to transfer a flyable flogger to America. The first layer of trust building, Fees wrote, was to ask VP Mubarak for permission to photograph a full set of classified manuals for the MiG-21 and MiG-23 versions they had. It was agreed and arranged by Mubarak, despite resistance from the military chief of staff. The CIA sent a team to Cairo to photograph many thousands of pages of MiG-21 and MiG-23 documents, but it was not all plain sailing. An Egyptian Air Force general balked at giving me MiG-23 documents at my first meeting with him. I went to the office and called VP Mubarak, and he said not to leave my office. And sure enough, the Egyptian general called back, asking me to please come at 9am the next morning to get all the documents I requested. From there, Fees launched into part two of the plan, asking whether one of our American USAF MiG pilots could come to Cairo and fly the MiG-23. He eventually agreed. The pilot came to the station and we arranged for him to fly in formation with a few other MiG-23s for a very satisfactory test, in his words. I understand that the pilot in question was General John Secord, a long-time special operations pilot who was at that time working as the Chief of Military Assistance Advisory Group in Iran. While in Iran, Secord had been the Air Force representative running Project Ibex and Project Dark Genie, CIA programs to gather electronic intelligence and photo-reconnaissance images of weaknesses in the Soviet air defence apparatus. Sukhort's trip in the MiG was a seminal moment, for it revealed to America that its intelligence estimates were 180 degrees out. The MiG-23 was faster than any tactical fighter in the US inventory, but it was not a good turning fighter. The advice to try to outpace it was all wrong. Secord fed back his findings through Air Force Systems Command and CIA channels, and Fees wrote that America swiftly briefed NATO on the findings. However, 
This contradicts anecdotal evidence from those who were there at the time, and while it's very likely that Fees was certainly told that this was the plan, the truth appears to be somewhat different. In reality, the indications point to the fact that America not only sat on the new information and did not share it with friendly Western nations, but also compartmentalised it so that it remained secret even from its own tactical aviators. As late as 1979, US Air Force pilots in frontline units were still unaware of the flogger's true capabilities, and their tactics manuals contained outdated information. Back in Cairo, it was time to land the big fish. Fees asked Mubarak to make the case to al-Sadat, and within a week, the word came back that transfer of a flyable flogger had been approved. Within just a few weeks more, the arrangements had been made, and a C-5 had been booked to collect the precious cargo. As the C-5 touched down at Groom Lake, the then unacknowledged airfield 90 miles to the northwest of the Las Vegas Strip, the black-wrapped cargo was disgorged from its belly and rolled into giant hangars with huge rolling doors. The timing of its arrival had been planned to ensure that no Soviet satellite was overhead, and other secret programs at the sprawling base had all taken cover, lest the galaxy crew see something they should not. The recipient of the asset was an Air Force Systems Command Unit that was secret in its own right, the 65th 13th Test Squadron, better known to insiders by its moniker, the Red Hats. The small unit's motto featured a bear wearing a wide-brimmed red hat and surmounting a globe hemisphere, all against a yellow background. Six red stars arced over the top, and two tabs included the name Red Hats and the motto, More with Less. It symbolised the team's ability to consistently produce useful data, despite the challenges of operating from a remote location and with a small cadre, and having to scrounge or make spare parts to keep their aircraft flyable. Under the project name Have Pad, the Red Hats would reassemble the flogger, conduct a wide array of non-destructive testing on it, and then extensively test fly it to reveal its strengths and weaknesses. Handling qualities range, endurance, max climb rate, sustained turn rates, and so on. The exploitation was known to few people, and in the typical fashion of such secret programs, heavily compartmentalised. So, with the technical exploitation completed, PAD was loaned by Air Force Systems Command to Tactical Air Command to allow the flogger to be exploited for its operational intelligence value. Besides, by this time, Al-Sadat had approved the transfer of a MiG-23BN Flogger F, the air-to-ground version of the jet, and Air Force Systems Command was exploiting this under the codename Have Boxer. PAD's technical exploitation started in March 1978, and Air Force pilot Major Ron Iverson was given responsibility of heading the team. He did so as yet more Egyptian floggers arrived at Groom Lake. Iverson was part of TAC's own secret unit, the 4477th Test and Evaluation Flight, the Red Eagles, which had been stood up in 1977 with the mission of building a squadron of MiGs against which to expose America's tactical Air Force units. This was only possible because another former Soviet customer, Indonesia, had traded its supply of MiG-21s for newer American hardware. Some of its MiGs had sat rotting in swamps, and these wrecked airframes were now being restored to airworthy condition at Groom Lake in preparation for their use in what would become known as Constant Peg. Part of the pad operational exploitation involved hiring an analyst, 
and Iverson selected a gifted aeronautical engineer, Captain Bob Drabant. US Navy pilot Tom Morgenfeld also joined the effort. Drabant had earned the respect of the fighter community by working on the groundbreaking energy maneuverability theory as put forward by the highly controversial but ultimately much respected Colonel John Boyd and civilian mathematician Tom Christie. In fact, Drabant was an understudy of both men, but he'd stood out for his practical work in creating performance graphs that the average fighter pilot could look at and understand. So between 1970 and 74, he conducted EM work as an aero engineer at the Air Force Armament Lab's Weapons Systems Analysis Division at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. The EM concept and Drabant's graphs provided the fighter pilot with a snapshot overview of an aircraft's performance capability. By studying the EM graph of one aircraft, or by overlaying it on top of the EM graph of another, its relative strengths and weaknesses became clear. The EM graph showed how fast, how high, and how many sustained G a given fighter could achieve in any given area of the flight envelope. Drabant had one foot planted in the white world, and the other in the black world. He had participated in the Freedom Fighter source selection, resulting in the Northrop F-5E, the lightweight fighter source selection, the winners of which were the General Dynamics F-16A for the Air Force, and the eventual F-18A for the Navy, at the same time. But on the dark side, he created the MiG-17 and MiG-21 EM graphs during a blanket exploitation program known as Have Idea, using them as examples during the process of transferring EM capability to Air Force Systems Command and the Air Force's Foreign Technology Division. Drabin recalled that one of the first things he did was install an air combat maneuvering instrumentation pod on pad. This missile-sized pod captured the flogger's performance characteristics and location, allowing a three-dimensional video of its mock air combat engagements to be visualised and replayed. Curiously, Air Force Systems Command shared no data with Iverson's team, so it came as a surprise to them to learn that the MiG could accelerate with aplomb, but couldn't turn to save its life. They got it totally wrong, he scoffed. To illustrate the point, Drabant recalled the flogger flying against an F-15A Eagle, flown by Timmy O'Keefe. They went nose to nose and passed each other at 15,000 feet and 500 knots, he said. Iverson, in the MiG, just unloaded and accelerated, so Timmy pulled a 7G turn for about 12 degrees per second, and by the time he had reversed his turn and locked one up with his radar, the MiG was three miles away, with a V sub C of minus 300 knots. In simple terms, the MiG had blown past the Eagle and was running away from it at a rate of one mile every 10 seconds. This was something that conventional intelligence wisdom held was impossible for it to do. With the operational exploitation of PAD completed by August 1978, Drabant spoke to the Foreign Technology Division to see whether they had developed the EM diagrams as part of the earlier Air Force Systems Command exploitation. He was shocked to hear they had not, but was aghast to learn that they would take more than a year to do so. This was a joke, he said, so I asked Iverson to send me on temporary duty assignment back to Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, where all my computer programs were, for creating the EM diagrams. He agreed, and so I took all the ACMI data and we put the new diagrams into the 3-1 tactics manual within weeks. It was only at this point 
and in the months that followed, that Fee's accomplishments really came to benefit America's tactical fighter crews en masse. The Sovmat Legacy For Fee's, Halfpad was the first step in our creating in Cairo Station a major Sovmat program, which continued with much success after I departed in June 1978. He was certainly not exaggerating. Bombs, missiles, radars, surface-to-air missile systems all followed, but the jewel in the crown was the flogger. In short order, 17 more MiGs, 11 MiG-23MS and 6 MiG-23BN would follow in due course. The first batch of 12 were shipped to the US in two C-5s, each carrying six airframes. There was evidently a substantial return on investment for all this corporation. In 1979, Egypt received a comprehensive foreign military sales package, valued at $594 million and known as Peace Pharaoh. It included the F-4E Phantom II jet fighter and later the F-16 Fighting Falcon. In the end, Fee's accomplishments would go unknown and unrecognised. That was, after all, the nature of his work. But in the decades that followed, it stands to reason that thousands of Air Force fighter aircrew would as they read the classified tactics manuals about the flogger, or even flew against the Egyptian examples, make a mental note that they owed a debt of gratitude to the unknown warrior who had made the impossible a reality.